0: Western Christianity has spent the last two thousand years telling everyone they're separated from God.
1: This is not Church with John and Nat Turney. Well hello everybody. Uh welcome back to the podcast. My name is Nat Turney. Um with my brother John as always. Say hey John. Hey John. <laughs> Is that ever going to get old? No, it's never uh, going to get old. Never going to get old. Is it, is it ever going to get old that I don't ask you if it's going to get old? I don't know. It just yeah. feels like we're now I feel like we're in a loop, but that's okay. Yeah. Um, this is uh, the podcast we have lovingly called This Is Not Church, um, where we have unchurchy conversations about church. And now that I've said the word church like four times, it sounds weird when I say it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I tell you what, we hit a high water mark today. We are super excited to have. Uh, our next guest on with us, um, Brian Zond is somebody who, for me, has been um, something of a shaman over the last several years as I kind of navigate my way through um, what it looks to what it looks like to be a part of church in a post evangelical reality that mm-hmm. is my reality anyway, and how to in a lot of ways rescue what good things remain you know when you' when you 've been fed a steady diet of religion and agenda. How do you strip that stuff away? And Brian has been one of those guys that for me, who has shown me um, a pathway to a more authentic faith, a pathway to a more genuine relationship with Christ. And I tell you what, his books have been amazing. So if you don't know who Brian Zond is, Brian Zond is the the pastor of Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. He, along with his wife, Perry, have pastored that church for a, a number of years and pastored them through some amazing stuff. And we'll maybe help, we'll hit on some of that. As we get started, he's authored a a plethora of groundbreaking books. Um, For me, uh, a watershed book was uh, A Farewell to Mars, um, which really, man, it just just opened up a lot of stuff. But um, Media Will Save the World, uh, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, um, and his new book that's about to be released, uh, When Everything's on Fire, which will be coming out on November 9th. So um, he doesn't need much more introduction from me. Um, I think I've said enough, but I just want to welcome you to the show. Brian, thank you so much for being here today.
0: Matt, John, good to be with you. And uh, yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Man, a few words. I love it. Uh, So uh, let's let's just jump in, if you don't mind. Um, We like to ask this of all of our guests, so um, might as well uh, ask you a similar thing. So would you mind kind of giving us the uh, like the Cliff Notes version of uh, your your spiritual journey, maybe the last several <laughs>
0: decades. <laughs> I mean, I'm getting old enough that it's hard to get it into cliff notes. It's 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 becoming a longer right. and longer story. Um, you mentioned that Perry and I have pastored our church a, a good long while. Well, uh, come the first Sunday of November, it will have been 40 years. Think of that one one church. Uh, many congregations, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. but one church uh, for 40 years. Well, here, here's here's the cliff note version. Here's my my story, and as brief as I think I can do it, I'm a product of the Jesus movement. This uh, kind of counterculture, Jesus centered youth movement that broke out in the 70s and eventually became global. And I'm from that. I encountered Jesus in a very dramatic way. I don't think, you know, that's normal. You don't, there's nothing particularly advantageous about having a a very sudden conversion. But mine was that way. And just overnight, I went from being the high school Zeppelin freak to the mm-hmm. high school Jesus freak. Although I still like Zeppelin. Yes. But, but, <laughs> uh, but it just, and everybody called me Fry. That was my name. I mean, teachers, everybody, nobody called me Brian. They called me Fry. That was my nickname. And they would all, you know, after a few weeks, people would just, you know, the whole school knew. And they'd say, Fry, I can't believe what's happened to you. And I'd say, I know, right? I can't believe it either, but it has. And by the time I was 17, I was leading a ministry called the Catacombs. We met in the basement of a dive bar on 3rd Street here in St. Joseph, Missouri and it was mostly cuz you know the jesus movement was a lot about the music it was right. mostly driven by the music and so it, it was a coffee house but it was what it mostly was was a music venue for the jesus music scene and so you know that's where i got to know all those people and i was like a 17 year old concert promoter or something but it also then began to have the feel of a church and then and then officially it just turned catacombs turned into Word of Life Church in 1981. So in one sense, our church is 40 years old, and in another sense, it's like 45 years old. And another way of saying this is, I've been doing the work of a pastor longer than I've been an adult. <laughs> it's, it's, first of all, it's not a good idea. Um, it's not a plan. It's not a pattern to follow, but it is, yeah. it's the story. It's what happened. And so, you know, Jesus movement and that just sort of just slid right into the charismatic movement, which I describe as good until it wasn't. Uh, there was a time when I thought it, it, it. there was a time when it was bringing a lot of life and uh, it was a fresh wind blowing through uh, dusty corners of the church. And it was good. And then it became celebrity driven and money. And so, so, you know, it's Jesus movement, charismatic movement, faith movement, because that kind of is where that went. Uh, and that, that leads into like, you know, religious right and all that. I never made a decision to be those things. That's just the stream I was in. That's where the current took me. And then at about 45, I just woke up and I thought, what am I doing here? How did I get here? Uh, I didn't start following Jesus as a radical Jesus freak in my teens to turn into just a Republican with a fish sticker on his SUV in my 40s. And I went through something of a crisis, I guess you could say. It, it, a crisis of faith could be misleading because I wasn't wondering or doubting Jesus. I was just saying that Jesus deserved a better Christianity than I knew. Uh, It just the Christianity I knew felt thin, weak, compromised. It felt like just sort of a slightly religious version of American consumer culture. And that led me on a long journey of uh, re-exploring the faith, largely through reading uh, serious theology. Uh, Because, you know, I hadn't done that. And so I started reading Church Fathers and then eventually was reading more contemporary theologians, and that changed me. It was an exciting time. This is like 2004, 5, six, seven, eight. In one sense, it was one of the best times of my life. And I'll say, I want to say Perry and I, because we're just, we're a team And we were just together, we were discovering in one sense what we'd really been looking for as far as an expression of the church and Christianity all of our lives, but we just hadn't found it yet. But also it's changing, you know, it's changing me, it's changing our ministry, it's changing my preaching. And so the church is changing and people don't (laughs) know. No, no, they don't. And uh, (laughs) it's not what they signed up for. And I could have probably brought most all of them through most of the changes, except one. And the big change was when I began to really not only pull away from any version of Christian nationalism, but began to critique it, began to call it out, began to challenge it. And for about a thousand people, I think that was just a bridge too far, and, and they couldn't go with us, and so they left. And that was very, so it was, it was a strange time of great joy in what we were discovering a much more authentic expression of Christian faith, but also painful because we were losing friends and people that we had loved and known and pastored for decades, maybe. And so that was a, a a painful and beautiful time, uh, behind every beautiful thing. There's been some kind of pain. There you go. And, um, so we we had to go through that, but we've we've come through it. So the people that are you know joining us on this podcast, you don't have to don't yeah. feel bad for me. I'm <laughs> okay. <laughs> Perry but, and I we're we're, yeah. we're healed, we're well. The church is good, uh, but it was a journey to get there. So you know, people, I say what what kind of church is Word of Life? I just don't know. I don't have an easy handle for it. I wish I did. I mean, it's still you know we're still we're still kind of rock and roll, you know. That's, I mean, I was part of that group that fought the battles to get the guitars and drums in the right. church. I'm not getting rid of it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and so, so, so in, in that sense, you might go, oh, yeah, they're just kind of another, you know, quasi charismatic praise and worship, rock and roll church. On the other hand, though, we are deeply committed to the great tradition and involving liturgy. Uh, the sacraments have become much more important to us. We embrace the whole body of Christ, you know. Um, sometimes people say you're becoming too Catholic. I say, go visit a Catholic church, and then come tell me. I mean, or just or just go ask my Catholic <laughs> friends. Is BZ becoming too no. Catholic? I go, no, no, he's new Catholic. <laughs> no. But uh, so so that's that's one version of telling my story. Uh,
1: I, I actually had the privilege of visiting your church a few years ago. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I was in town for uh, for the Crucified God conference with uh, Michael Harden and Brad Jersak and you. And so uh, that that landed us. Yeah, that landed us on a Sunday. And So a group of us who had only met on Facebook finally had a chance to meet in person. And we came to this conference together and we all went to we all went to church at, at Word of Life. It was you were smack dab in the middle of uh, your you were still calling it Finding God in your iPod. And uh, I still remember the, the the Sunday I was there it was the whistles and the bells. um, uh, Mercy. Which was, uh, yeah. turned me on to a whole new band. But anyway, that, that's a whole new, I, I, I thought it was interesting because what you just described is exactly how I would have described your church. Um, still a little bit rock and roll. Um, still in some ways very, um, comfortable. If you were an evangelical sort of mega church, you know, if that had been your, your, where you'd grown up, I still, I still had that sense of walking into a you know a larger building and the coffee shop and the other stuff that was there. But then I walked up to your prayer room and it, and and things were different, you know. And obviously the uh, I've I've actually tried to uh, I I planted a church about two years ago and we've modeled some of what we're doing after some of what you do as well. It's peppering in some of the liturgy, bringing in some more traditional aspects, and I, I just think it's brilliant.
0: Well, when I say. I don't know how to describe Word of Life Church as, you know, to give it a nice label. I'm not being difficult. I mean, I I really just don't know. On the other hand, it doesn't mean that we are utterly unique. You know, there are more and more churches that are finding this way that is somewhere between great tradition and, come on, it is the 21st century. Right. And and (laughs) it is that. Yes. And so we're, we're somewhere in between those things. I mean, we're, we're obviously, you know, our music is contemporary, just maybe just kind of our our style is contemporary. But we we really want to have these deep roots. And I find more and more churches that have just found that American consumer Christianity is just far too thin. And so they're wanting those roots that are going burrowing, you know, into the great tradition, what what the church has done and believed and practiced for nearly two thousand years. So, I'm, I'm always glad that I'm finding more and more of those kind. We don't have a we don't have a label for it, and that's probably good. That's actually a good thing. Once we start to label things, it's
1: kind of interesting because you what you said about movements. Um, we actually talked about with Perry when we had her on the program.
0: Perry does like zero podcasts.
1: It's just I, a know, thing. Right? I don't know. So I don't know we're how. actually gonna. You must have tricked her into it or something. I don't know. <laughs> I was I was I was persistent. Is what he I was, been, and I, I tried very. I'll just tell
0: you, Liz, like, She doesn't do them.
1: <laughs> uh, and I, I can't wait to. We haven't re- even released hers yet. We we're waiting to have you on so we could do yours simultaneously. Like they release yours and hers pretty close together. Um, but we did discuss this idea that we've all. We all actually. It sounds like John, you, and myself, Perry. It sounds like we all traveled some of these same roads together because John and I are children of the seventies. You know, we're children, of, we, we were, m- my parents got saved in the Jesus movement. Um, And so we grew up in the shadow of the Jesus movement, which, and, and exactly how you described, you know, which transitioned into, you know, I, I was, you know, I was fully immersed in the word of in the word of faith movement for several years, um, which transitioned eventually into, into the grace movement, which translates you know, and all of those movements, I think what you said about the Jesus movement, and about the word of faith movement, and I would even say about the grace movement. What, I think they all initially start out as a necessary adjustment or a necessary, sometimes even an overreaction to, to what we've found. Um, and then at some point they become the thing we have to then grow out of as well. Once they establish themselves and become, you know, and don't you think that once they, and Perry and I decided that once, once those movements just, just begin to develop their own vocabulary, and their own sort of expected responses. You know, when she, when you say to me, "God is good," I'm supposed to say <laughs>
0: all, all the time. time,
1: and you say all the time, and God is good. And and once, you, or if I ask you how you are, you're supposed to say, if you're a word of faith person, you're supposed favored. to say I'm blessed and highly favored of the Lord, right? And so once there, once there is suddenly this whole lexicon of of expected
0: call and, I don't know, it's it
1: almost like, okay, it's almost like that
0: movement has- Well, it's, it's language be valued into the cliche. Right. And suddenly yeah. words are empty and they don't mean anything. They're empty signifiers. All they do is signify, I'm in the tribe. But beyond- right, exactly. Beyond a signaling that you are in the tribe, it doesn't indicate anything. And none of that's helpful. Eugene Peterson, who later in his life became a friend. You know, I really got to know Eugene Peterson. and. Uh, uh, I can't tell you the, the the amount of disdain he had for any kind <laughs> of abusive of language like that. You know, he loved language, and oh, yeah. the idea no, that sure. people would be uh, disingenuous with their use of language, he hated
1: that. <laughs> I always got the impression, and, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, I never got to meet or speak with Eugene, but I always got the impression that Eugene was about the nicest human being on the planet. But that he, but that he had a sharp
0: no. He, that's it, not true. He 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 was kind and wise, but he had a. Uh, you want to hear a story?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because I, I suspect there's, I suspect there's an edge to him that that we don't this all get all, to this see. Is,
0: this is great. So Eugene could be difficult, not not in a not in his mannerism, but you just couldn't trying to convince him to do something if he didn't want to do it was utterly impossible. Just about, but I wanted him to speak at a pastor's conference. And he doesn't like pastor's conferences. And uh, so I just, I kept working on it. And he said, well, give me six months to think about it. And he did that and he ended up saying, but I ended, I, I, I hosted it in Estes Park, Colorado in the mountains, which he loves the mountains. That was, it was all part of how can I get him here? And so, so I, I got him to do the conference. It was a strange, it was beautiful. What we did was he had his five books on pastoral theology. I can't name them all now. That's like Christ plays in 10,000 places, the Jesus way. The long obedience is that in there. Yeah. Yeah. Those. So we, we went through those five books. I had everybody that came to it, read those books and then I would inter. Then he would he would present on the book for half an hour. I would interview him for a half an hour, and then we would have a half an hour Q and A. And we did that five times. Uh, it was the it's a strange thing about the conference, though. It's the only pastors' conference I've ever been to where pastors were lying about the size of their church by making it smaller. <laughs> 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 he's, he doesn't like you know. He's like that's another thing. He, he thought my church was too big, you know. And and uh, <laughs> that frustrated Perry. She's like, you don't know how how hard we work to get to this level, you know. But but anyway, um. So the story though is, there was this guy. Um, I, I'm not going to say his name at all, and he's in a good place now. But he wasn't so much then, and uh, he's like, I, I got to talk to Eugene. I said, everybody wants to talk to Eugene. I but I really got. I said, okay, and so because I was, you know me. You can exhaust Eugene. He was older, but he but just he's 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 not an extrovert. And so when he was done speaking, I would usually get him back to his room. But so everybody left and this one guy was there. And I wasn't gonna leave Eugene alone with him. So I stayed in the room and he he starts talking to Eugene and he goes, Here's what we're doing. Our church is really growing. And I feel like I've got to leverage my gift. He used that phrase. I'm thinking, oh And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna open up satellite churches and I'll I'll be able to be there on a screen. You know, he's ex- he's explaining, you know, th- this phenomenon and, and he's wanting to know what Eugene thinks about this. Here's what Eugene listens to it. And I'm just going to I'm going to do it exactly he said it twice now so I'm going to say it twice. I'm going to show you I'm going to do ex- I'm going to say exactly what Eugene said. He looked at this man and went it's of the devil. <laughs> It's of the devil.
2: <laughs> That's all
0: he said. This poor pastor who, by the way, is is in a he's in a good place. And he's not he's yeah, not yeah. in the ministry per se anymore. That church kind of <laughs> imploded, but but he didn't it's of the devil. It's of the devil. So all right, nice. I'm writing this down. I don't down. know if that's nice. I wouldn't describe <laughs> as nice, but but he is he is. Right.
1: Uh, oh, I I always, yeah. I mean, I just assumed you know. I've seen. I guess the mannerisms and the way that, that he always presented himself is that he was a kind man. Yes, but you know, I always, yes. I, but I did, but I did sense there was, um, there was there were things about him that were intractable. You know, yep. like, like, like he was—he didn't suffer fools. Like he that, wasn't gonna play your game. He did um, not suffer
0: fools. That
1: he would just look him in the eye and go, "It's yeah. of the
0: devil."
1: <laughs> it's <laughs> of the devil. <laughs> so, so, anybody with that with who lacked the self awareness to go to Eugene Peterson and talk about their satellite churches and how they were gonna yeah, become I, a celebrity, I, as essentially, soon as he <laughs> into
0: that, I thought, oh, you're like, oh, sweet love lord, this man. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh, man. Oh, man. Eugene, bless your heart, man. Um, it's a, it's a, it's, a, yeah. it's sad that yeah. I never got a chance to meet him, but I look forward to it one day because uh, I think that man was and is a treasure. You
0: know, at the end of his life, I mean, the last few years, he, there was just a steady stream of pilgrims that would make their way to Montana, to his house. And he, he was always, he would meet with pastors and spend time with them. Yeah. Or Bono would right, drop by. Right, I would always yeah. ask him these Bono stories, and he was completely not taken in by that.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, that's that's my favorite Eugene Peterson story. Yes, yeah. No, I yeah, I, I I remember. I don't know if it's in that video that that came out where uh, where he and Bono talked about the Psalms. Um, I think Bono gives, tells a story about how um, they tried to get him to uh, to be their chaplain on the road, and and he was like, "What's a." And he's like, hey, dad, you know, I guess his daughter or his granddaughter said, Bono's on the phone. He said, what's a Bono? <laughs> but yeah, he's like, he was, he's like, I was next.
0: Well, that wasn't the first time, but this is when he was still teaching at um, Regent in Vancouver. And Bono wanted to meet with him. He had no <laughs> idea who Bono was. And he was in the process of finishing translating Isaiah mm-hmm. for yeah, the what, message. Like, and they kept saying, it's Bono. And he would say, it's Isaiah. <laughs> and so, so I, you know, I'm pretty sure. I mean, think about it. If Bono wants to meet Yeah, someone, I'm sure he meets right, just about he whoever he wants. He wants. And so that was his encounter with Eugene. No, I'm not going to meet with you. I'm busy. I'm translating <laughs> Isaiah. And I think that, that even, that just put the relation, you know, when he finally did get to meet him, it was, this guy is not enamored by my celebrity in the least. And he wasn't. Jan kind of liked it. Jan liked it. Jan, because, you know, they would t- I don't know why they would take him to, uh, why YouTube wanted yeah. him to come to one of their shows, because he didn't like that kind of music, but they did anyway. And, but, but, but Jan liked the limo, right? that was cool, you know, <laughs> they, they, they took us to the show. Oh, the so, limo. <laughs> that is so cool. I always thought
1: it was neat. Uh, we can transition to talk about music a little bit too, because I know you love music and, and so do we. And, um, I, I always found it, I see. I see all the musical instruments over there. Yeah, no, there's John's a whole bunch sober. of guitars in John's room, and all mine are tucked away. But I always thought it was really neat that you two. I always knew they had a chaplain with them on the road, um, but we got to talk to a guy um, named Kenneth Tanner, who I think you know, who, uh, hmm. yeah, who was friendly well. with yeah. um, not the current chaplain, but the chaplain before, and uh, spoke about actually how much of how big of a role that chaplain played in their lives. It wasn't just. Someone to, you know, sort of hold hands and pray before a show that that chaplain was vitally important um, on their tours.
0: I have several. I, I've never met any of those guys, YouTube, but I have several friends that I know quite well that, that have that do know them. And they all tend to say the same thing. They tend to say uh, they're more Christian oh, yeah. than they let yeah. on. They, they kind of play it well. They, they, they allow their rock star persona to take front stage. But... You know, behind that, they're they're deeply oh, yeah. committed. Yeah. I believer. wonder if
1: they saw you know sort of that that you know what they try to do to Dylan. You know, <laughs> and we're like, no, we're not going to be. I think Bonham was always very circumspect about trading on his Christianity and allowing himself to become you know just another you know celebrity Christian that could be trotted out.
2: Um, well, do we, I mean? Don't we see that? We see that quite a few times. We see that with Dylan. We see that with Coburn. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Coburn uh, yeah. kind of became a little bit more vocal about his faith. But then as the vultures or whatever you want to say, kind of started to circle around and wanted him to almost like pinpoint his faith and like be a little bit more outspoken about it. He's like, yeah, I don't do that. That's not how I do this. And, uh, I, I, I have a lot more respect for people like Dylan who have kind of stepped back from that very open kind of cliche kind of,
0: they're, they're still producing art. Yes, instead exactly. Of propaganda. Right. Yes, yeah. Yeah. So that's it's very tempting in the Christian world to turn art into Christian propaganda, but then it's no longer art, and it's no longer really true. And um th- this is what's wrong with you know so-called Christian movies. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. if you want a Christian movie, oh, you want Terrence Malick, you want The Tree of Life, you want A Hidden Life, you want those. Um, But they're they're not gonna they're not gonna come in under the Banner of Christian movie because th- those rarely, if ever, rise to the level of art. They become cliche, and even you know, I mean, I was around, the, the Jesus movement was a little bit different. There was it was not self conscious. What happened was is you had in the early days it was so it was such a new movement that these were just musicians that were just who they were. And then they had an encounter with Jesus. And so just they just sort of naturally sang about Jesus. I mean, it's it's like, why did the Beatles write songs about girls? Because that's what they were into, you know? And it wasn't, it wasn't like they were following a script. It's it's just that's you know, where it was. Then later on it became, quote, a genre. So that if you were a contemporary Christian musician, you had to. Your, your only songs could be, had to be sermons. You know, they couldn't be about just life or whatever. And I think you two somehow knew that very early on. I know there were discussions, you know, are oh, we yeah. a Christian band? And uh, they kind of made, you know, we're Christians. Uh, Adam Clayton wasn't, to begin with, for a long time. He now calls himself Christian, but for a long time he wasn't. Well, they said, "No, we're Christians, but we're just we're we're a rock band, you know. We'll we'll do what we do." And I think that was I I don't know how at such a young age they had the wisdom
2: to choose that path, but I'm sure glad they did. um, Our mother, uh, Nat, my my mother, posted a, a picture of a memory from. These had to be like what, mid seventies, late seventies of a Bible study that they, they were part of when Nat and I were kids. And it was part of that Jesus movement. And it just brought back a whole bunch of memories of just a group of people that um, there's a, there was a place, it doesn't exist anymore. There was a place just um, south of Eureka where I Nat and I were born and raised uh, called the Lighthouse Ranch. And it was kind of a, a former hippie commune type of place, but it became like connected with a local church. And it was just where these people started to gather, right? Because they just, they felt the need to be part of a community, felt the need to be connected in some way. And um, I was talking to my dad last couple of days about about that picture and the memories it brought back and how there was a point, like you said, it was good until it wasn't good, Right. And I think what it was and what I remember, because I was pretty young and Nat was pretty young and we were from the outside looking in kind of. And what was cool for us was, yeah, like you were saying, it was it was more centered around music, about getting together, having a meal together. You know, Jesus will come up when Jesus comes up. That conversation will just kind of inherently work that way.
0: You know, uh, in the last, I don't know, 10 years, maybe longer. I've read a lot of books on, I've just been really curious about what was the early church like? You know, we have this romantic interest in it. So, I mean, like, you know, if you showed up in Alexandria in the year 180 and found the Christians, what was it like? Um, The best book I found, our listeners here can, I'm just going to tell you the best book on that. It's called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. Patient Furman of the Early Church by Alan Kreider, who passed away just a couple of years ago. It's a fairly recent book. It was like my book of the year for 2000, whatever, 12, 14, whatever year it came out. As reading that book and also Larry Hutado's Destroyer of the Gods, which is a similar book, at at many moments while reading, you know, these are scholars that, that as much as anyone alive today can help you understand what life was like for an early Christian in the Roman Empire. There were many times when I thought, man, it reminds me of the Jesus movement, where it was, the life was really in homes, and we, we did life together. I mean, the idea of, of, it was, it's, you know, between the hours of 10 and noon on Sundays, I mean, we, we had that too, but it was just our life. I mean, we were with people um, who were committed to Jesus just all the time, and then of course there was also the phenomenon of of communal life. You know, most of those didn't work out well, but there was at least that that inclination to share, to do life together, a certain amount of simplicity. There was a, there was an implied uh, skepticism of. American military might be in any way a force for good in the world um, because it's it had that, and so that's why I don't know if you if you've read my book Postcards from Babylon, this is my critique of you know American religious nationalism. What I tell you how that book really works. I mean, it's written for whoever will read it, but what that really is is me talking to my Jesus movement compatriots. We're now in our 60s, and I was actually one of the younger ones in Jesus. So they, they're I maybe mean, closer to 70, you know, or in their 70s. Most of them are. Uh, that's me talking to them, basically trying to say, "What has happened to you? You started off as this radical, committed follower of Jesus, and now you're just gonna you're just gonna wave the flag of American nationalism. You know better than that. What has happened to you? So. Something went wrong somewhere, and I think I don't. I don't know. I mean, I think about this every day. You know what happened? I mean, not everyone went down that path, but a whole lot did.
1: Yeah, I mean, more did than didn't. And I'm, you know, I'm not much young. Yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm. I'll be fifty this year, and so matter of fact, I'll be fifty. I'll be fifty next month. So I mean, you and I are pretty close in age, and I've been in ministry and I've been in church my whole life, and. I have never, and I mean never, I could stand in the pulpit of my church, and I have, and tell people, um, for example, that I, I, you know, I think, you know, I think our version of, of heaven and hell and eschatology, I think it's all messed up, and I think we've overemphasized the hell and underemphasized the goodness and mercy of God, and get, eh, a little pushback, and I and I can say other things that might be seemingly radical. I tell you what. I have mentioned once the Second Amendment. I have mentioned once Christian nationalism and the pushback has been sometimes really vocal and very, very catastrophic. Um, and I, that's yeah, the one. That's, that's, the, that's that the third rail of can, Western religion, especially in this part of the world. I, th- I would bet that um, your part of Missouri is very similar to my part of West Texas, um, where you know, walk into very, very many churches and right next to the cross, you're going to find an American flag. Next to a Christian flag, which both make me so, want to throw up.
0: So y'all know Jason Upton. You're familiar with Jason Upton, Christian music. Yeah, he's, a, he's a dear friend. And, and he listens to, I think, most of my sermons. He calls me up one day and he says, this is this is 10 years ago, probably, when we were more going through it. Uh, he said, BZ, you're in St. Joseph, Missouri. You're not in Boston. <laughs> you're not in Berkeley how do you get away with preaching what you preach in St. Joseph, Missouri? And I said, this isn't getting right, I'm just doing it. I'm, yeah. I'm just doing it anyway. I'm paying the price, but, but I'm still gonna do it.
1: Yeah, so, at yeah. some point we decided, you know.
0: Yeah, so, so in one sense, Word of Life went through this transition, 2004, 5, 6, 7, 8, where we were moving away from all that. And th- then, it was bad then, I thought. And then, you know, 16, yeah, 17, 18, 19, exponentially 20. Exponentially worse. Horrible. But but we had already moved away from any kind of association with Christian nationalism, civil religion, all that. So the recent years haven't really been a problem for us because we'd kind of already dealt with that. Um but I don't know any pastor who, who, unless they're just going with it, unless they're celebrating, unless they're fully embracing religious. I don't know anyone that's tried to resist it and hasn't. Yeah, Well No, people. I don't. Yeah, I, it's it's a deal breaker. Yeah, and it's yeah. Go ahead, John. I mean, I mean, here here's the pastoral yes, challenge sir. for Americans. The American pastor is tasked with making disciples out of people who are already thoroughly discipled into a rival religion. But they don't even know it's a rival religion. And so, and, and the religion is Americanism. I mean, America is, America is a behemoth. It's enormous. It's an empire. It's, it's, it, America is so big that it's not one thing, it's four things. It's a nation, you know, with its 50 states and all that. We know it's a nation. It's a culture. Because, you know, any, I can go anywhere. And as the U2 song says, That's outside, right. it's America. That's right. yep. And everywhere I go, I see America. Even, you know, I, I'm just back from Scotland. Did I see, did I see McDonald's mm-hmm. and KFC and yep. whatever else? You know, Are there Apple products all over? Yeah, of course. It's, it's a, so it's a nation, a culture, an empire that is you know, a rich, powerful nation that believes it has a divine right to rule other nations and shape history according to its agenda. It's an empire. And it's, it's a religion. Now, as a nation and a culture, America is a mixed bag. There's much to critique, but there's much to celebrate, too. There's much to say, now, that's good. You know, America's contribution to art and science and culture, there's, there's much to celebrate. Uh, as, as an empire, it's a rival to the lordship of Christ. And as a religion, well, it's, an, it's, an, it's, it's idolatrous. And people say, well, you know, and of course, I don't know who's hearing this. I don't know how bad people are going to freak out when I say America is a religion. But is that is that really disputable? I mean, it is a religion with all of the hallmarks of a religion, with 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 its sacred fathers and founders and founding myths and holy days and liturgies and uh, liturgical signs and the apotheosis of Washington painted on the dome of the Capitol rotunda. This is George Washington ascending to heaven to rule among the gods. I mean, yes, it's a religion. And, um, of course the, 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 the real, and I know you see this, you want you're in Texas and California. John else. doesn't see it. Cause no. John where are you at? I bet he does. I bet he does. Yeah. Like, even in oh, California, yeah. I bet he sees this. You know, you'll be driving by a church and mm-hmm. they're in the flags but they're kind of economical. They got one right. flag. Pole. So they're all just- <laughs> So they want to have multiple flags. <laughs> right. But they only got one flag pole, yeah. and that creates, you know, now you got to arrange them. And so they'll have the American right. flag on top. And then subordinate to it, the Christian flag. Now, mind you, the Christian flag is not historic no, it's just- Christian iconography. It's obviously like conflation of a cross and American symbols. But let's just, okay, let's just take it at face value. and say that it represents Christian faith. Always, always in the subordinate position. Always penultimate. That That is a moment of unintended truth-telling yeah, on the church right. lawn. And I'll challenge people on that and they say, oh, it doesn't mean that. It's okay, yeah. then well, no, reverse no. them. Switch them. And here's what they'll use. This they'll say, well, we can't do this. Sure you can. Well, it's illegal. Yeah, no, it's not. First of all, it's not. <laughs> Secondly, Do so it anyway. Do <laughs> so what if it was? You know, do it anyway. Uh, it's... Uh, I have a, I know a guy. Well he he helped me to oh he didn't help me, he did it. Um, you know, there's a there's a documentary, Postcards from Babylon. And it's gonna be widely available end of October. Like like, you know, Apple, DirecTV, everywhere. Um, it's really well done. But he was telling me a story about when he was like, I don't know, he was on staff at some mega church and they, they had the flags like that. And he actually went out and, and just like in the dead of night. And uh, he'd begun to, he'd read, I think, A Farewell to Mars or something. And he went out there and <laughs> <laughs> didn't, never owned up, to, didn't tell anybody, you know, man, it was, yeah. people were not yeah. happy. <laughs> I mean, he did it like on a Saturday night. So that when they're coming in Sunday morning, they're seeing this. That's mad. And, uh, that- that would be funny and
1: also um, revealing, would it not? I mean, because what you say is exactly true. I mean,
0: that's, yeah. why, that's why I bring it up. I it mean, is, isn't I mean, it? Doesn't that really?
1: I don't bring think the it's disputable. And you know, the the churches that that you know that are around where I live, um, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's always that Um And I don't know. It it, it if you reverse it, I guarantee you're right. You'd have a, you'd have an issue on your hands. Um, my issue is. You know, I, I really, I, that bothers me to see it on, on the church building. And, but I tell you what, when it moves into the church building and then they're arranged, you know, on stage and they're, you know, oh my gosh, I don't know. I, I went to a church service recently. My uh, my grandson goes to a a Lutheran school. So if anyone from that school is listening, I'm sorry, but it bothered me um, that you guys made us all pledge allegiance to the flag in your church. Um, that bothered me. It still bothers me.
0: Yeah, I don't. I don't do it. I found that you can you can pray the Lord's prayer without the uh, doxology at the end. For thine is the kingdom, of and You have to say it too fast. You just you know end with right, uh, right. How it ends. Deliver us from the from evil. Uh yeah. it's about the same. I, I don't. I don't make a scene out of it. I don't. I. But I just I just my allegiance is pledged to Christ. I'm a good citizen. I pay my taxes. I think I'm a positive presence in this nation. Um, but I'm not going to swear allegiance to it. I'm not going yeah, to pledge allegiance to it. Uh, my allegiance is, is pledged to Christ. My nationality is what we call in philosophy an accidental. It's not, it has no ontological significance. Yes. It's just that happened to be an American as someone else would happen to be, you know, sure. Canadian or British or South it African. Could or have whatever. just as easily been anything else, right?
1: I mean... Yeah. So right. that's, uh, yeah, it's, it's one of those places where I feel like the, you know, the contemporary church in particular, I don't think, I, I, it's, it strikes me as funny. I wonder if what kind of conversation you would have had to have, you know, in the first century to, <laughs> to get Christians to stop flying the Roman flat. Well, I guess there maybe there wasn't one, but we're going to need <laughs> to bring the eagles down off of the, uh, um and, and, and it, it, I don't know that it would have entered their minds ever, ever, ever to have pledged allegiance to an empire that's antithetical.
0: Well, see, what happens, though, let's be honest. I mean, the, the Roman Empire up until Constantine was not hospitable to the church. So, you know, they're being persecuted periodically. And there, there was never really much of a temptation, although although if a correct reading of the book of Revelation does show us that John the Revelator was concerned that Christians could somehow be drawn into yeah. the emperor. Okay. And he was warning them, reminding them, remember, this is a beast and we follow the lamb. But in general, I don't think the temptation was too strong until you end up with a so-called Christian emperor. And on the one hand, I will say to go down that road where the church is now serving the interest of the empire, it was a mistake. I mean, that's, I mean clearly it's a mistake. I mean, the trajectory leads it to the two, ultimately to the great, you know, yes, through the Crusades and a bunch of awful stuff, but ultimately to the two great world wars in Europe, where in the name of national allegiance, baptized Christians are slaughtering one another by the millions. But, but I want to say this, too. I think the mistake, at least in the fourth century, was probably an inevitable mistake. I, I, don't, I just don't know that they could have resisted making that. I think they probably did think this is how the kingdom comes. It's finally arriving. We have a Christian emperor. And I th- I think it was a mistake in good faith. But 17 centuries later, haven't we learned the lesson? We don't have to keep repeating this. Now I don't know that the mistake is made in good faith. And I don't know that you can plead ignorance and say it's inevitable. No, we should have learned by now that the church does not need the coercive apparatus of the state to try to bring about what we're called to bring about. In fact, here's, here's what I would say. I, I think the church, and especially the American church, needs to let go of this language of change the world. Yeah, I agree. Once we set out to change the world, first of all, it's hard to do. (laughs) Secondly, uh, when you do that, the temptation to reach for the ring of power is too great. You want Sauron's ring, you want Caesar's sword, because that is the most efficient, quickest way to bring about change, is that you control the apparatus of government, which means the sword. Um. And that is a. That's what Jesus saw the third temptation as, and he saw it as bowing down to Satan. He says, "Get behind me! I'm not going to do that. I'm going to serve God and worship Him only." Um, so yeah, you just we we when instead of changing the world, let's just be. First of all, it's not our job. Jesus is the Savior of the world, and it's His job. Our job is simply to be the world as already changed by Jesus. We don't have to change the world, just be the world changed by Jesus. Just just in just embody this faithful presence. Just be that little tiny section, the little tiny portion of the world that's already been changed by Christ. Um so we we like that rhetoric. We like that big language. Americans like all that sort of stuff. We you, you see it a lot in youth. Yeah, you're culture, a world changer, you know, right? That's youth. A- right. Yeah, all. That. I I think all of that ultimately is unhelpful. I think it feeds ego. I think it also just feeds, you know, the drive to to control the levers of power, which Jesus constantly renounces. And so. That 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 would be a helpful change is to get rid of just even the idea that our job is to change the world. No, it's not. Just to be faithful. Let Jesus change the world. We'll be that part of the world already changed by Jesus. That's enough. And in fact, again, I'm I'm back to uh, thinking about what I've been reading over the last decade or so on the early church. Other than the first apostolic wave, you know, with in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. You know, up until about the seventies. So the first generation, they were aggressively evangelistic in the sense of, you know, Paul going into new cities and proclaiming, you know, Jesus as the Lord getting stoned and all that sort of stuff. Uh later on, by the by the second century, the church is not doing that. Now they're they are growing though. They're growing at 40% per decade, which is really but they grew. I'll say it like this. Uh, so let's say you go, to, you're you're in the Church of Alexandria in the year 160, and you come to your bishop and you say, "Hey, Bishop, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna go talk to my butcher about Jesus." Most likely, the bishop would say, "Don't do that. That's don't just don't. You don't need to do that. Uh, you'll get it wrong anyway." Uh, and yet they're growing at 40%. How? Because people were attracted to the lifestyle of the Christians. They saw them as different. They saw them as having peace. They saw how they cared for one another, and people would aspire to belong to that community, but it was difficult to get in. It was, there wasn't a set time, but the catechism was generally around three years, and they emphasized they, they would teach you the doctrines, the Christian doctrines, in like the last week before your baptism on Easter. Most of that was, was training in Christian ethics, how to live as a Christian, how to live honestly, how to not be a person that is known for anger and violence, uh, to live sexually moral. Uh, that was the emphasis. And so it was hard to get into the church. It was hard to join you know, there was high standards, but it was growing at 40% a decade. But they weren't necessarily out as we think of evangelism, preaching and saying, you bunch of pagans, you need to get saved. They weren't doing that. They were simply being the world already changed by Jesus and the wider culture, many of them, found it attractive and would say, I think I want to and, and to and to be a part of the church, you had to be like sponsored. It's like AA or something. You had to have a sponsor. And they say, ah, oh, this is this is Bob the butcher, and he's interested. Well, all right. And and, and I'm not saying this is the pattern. I, we can't go back to this. But what they would do is you could you could attend as a catechumen, but you had to leave before the Eucharist at the end. Uh, not, not until you were baptized could you you know participate in that. I, I'm not saying don't. No one should hear me saying, okay, that's that's the key. We found in the key. And look being a church in late antiquity in the Roman Empire is very different being a church in post-Christendom in America in the 21st century. So I don't think we can just take their model and overlay it in our situation into work because I don't think it will. But I, but I do think, I, this all came up because I'm emphasizing the point, let go of the language of it's our job to change the world. We don't have to change the world; just be the world changed by Jesus. All right, that, that's my sermon. Yeah,
1: no, I, I, it's interesting because what what it seems like that lends itself to that whole change the world, that whole world changer stuff, um, is it is it it drives a certain attitude of sort of culture warrior in us, doesn't it? Where we next thing I know, I I gotta now I, now I gotta boycott Disney. Now I got to go boycott Starbucks because, you know, mm-hmm, they, they didn't mm-hmm. put enough Jesus-y words on my, on my Christmas cup. Or, you know <laughs> what I mean? Or, there's, or somebody had the, uh, uh, you know, Disney puts, you know, an openly gay, you know, character on one of their shows. Now I can't do anything with Disney because they're all a bunch of heathens. Now I have to go tilt every windmill in
0: order to try and conform. the. Yeah, this is, this is why it's helpful to recognize America as not a kind of biblical Israel, but a kind right, of biblical right. Babylon. Babylon gonna be Babylon. So let things. so let
1: Babylon be Babylon. And like I said, I love how you say that, you and I, and that sort of resonates with with stuff that I've been telling my people for a little while now, which is essentially, um, you know, that we're you know we're we're to live as though the kingdom is here and now. So let's live as kingdom people, even yep. in the midst of whatever this culture is. Who cares? Uh, it's not my job to conform the culture to me. It's not my job to make you know corporations bow to my sensibilities. Um, it's my job to live as authentically Jesus-y as I can um, and not really, you know, and not give a wit what those things are around me. Well,
0: and and we should view Christianity as countercultural. Yeah, absolutely. Not a subculture, by the way. Uh, I think part of the Christian element in the culture wars is they don't want to be counter-culture. They 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 want Christianity to be the dominant culture. And of course, it's not going to work that way. The only way that it will work is if it is a deeply compromised Christian.
1: Yeah, the only way that seems to work is then when it's in the financial interests of someone like, say, a Starbucks to say, well, hey, you know, this, this segment of the population is Christian. I should pander to them somewhat and at least meet them halfway right. on you
0: know. And isn't, isn't that, isn't that
1: pathetic? Isn't that lame? I don't want people doing that. <laughs> it is so sad, but we, but we eat it up, you know, we're like, and then when they don't do it to our satisfaction, you know, you got guys making YouTube videos, you know, calling out, you know, you know, calling out Starbucks or, or coming up with little tricks to, you know, I saw this guy on Facebook a couple years ago and um, I won't say his name because he doesn't deserve the the re- the recognition, but he he'd you know, when the, when the, when the poor schlub at Starbucks took his order and he asked him for his name, he said it was Merry Christmas. I made that son of a gun say Merry Christmas. I tricked him. <laughs> like, as though he wouldn't have said it, you know what I mean? But again, it was this whole pitting himself against this larger culture when really, I don't know, it's the furthest thing from any kind of, Persecution that exists in the planet, you know, it takes a certain amount of privilege to think that you're persecuted. (laughs) (laughs) Oh Oh, my goodness!
0: Yeah.
2: Well, then, then, then we then we take that culture and we and we just airdrop it right into the government as if that's where it belongs. Oh yeah. As if uh, if we could just Christianize the government, then things will work better. Where we've seen time and time again, that's it's counterintuitive it just doesn't work
0: that's that's the, that's a symptom of our abysmally low ecclesiology we basically believe the church is nothing and so because it's not, it, it's it's kind of a common interest group that meets on sundays and so so it's not a thing that has significance in and in any power in and of itself. So it has to be parasitical. It has to control other things that they believe are powerful. So I think it's just, it's just, we have such a low ecclesiology that the church is superfluous. It's nothing. It's a common interest group. And so we can't see the church as being where we're to live our Christian life. It has to, I don't know if that makes sense. Um, Somebody asked me the other day, well, what is evangelism? And look, I mean, through my, however many years it's been, I'm losing track now, how long I've been following Jesus, long time. Um, You know, I've done it all. I mean, if you can do it as a Christian, I've probably done it. I mean, I've preached on streets and bars and big crusades and da, 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 da. I've done it all. Printed, written tracks, printed them up myself. I mean, on a printing press that I was turning with my hand, you know, and hand them out on the street. I've done it all. Knocked on doors. I've knocked on enough doors to, you know, put a Jehovah's Witness to shame. <laughs> and, uh, but, but they asked me now, what, what what does evangelism look like for you now? And I, I'll say this. I, I just think it's, again, you know, give me some grace here in what I'm saying, but I think it's just mostly inviting people to a good church. And there are plenty of Christians that desperately need to be Evangelize.
1: Amen. That's true.
0: And so, I really don't see my task of evangelization necessarily particularly aimed at at intention at self-identified non-Christians. It may that be that, but again, I know this could be misconstrued. You're just wanting to, you know, proselytize, and that's the, I just. I, If I'm speaking from my heart, I think evangelism mostly looks like inviting
2: people into good, healthy churches. Because there's a lot of them that are. not And I would just say, speaking from the other side, um, the sad part about that is, and I I think Nat might agree or would agree with me on this one. uh, We've both been in churches that I would never invite anybody to. Mm -hmm. I've been on staff and church wouldn't invite people to. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not in a church at the moment. i um, not sure I ever will step foot in a church again, but one of the reasons I, I've stepped away from the church is that for the most part, Western, the Western church has, has proven me, proven time and time again, that they're not a good place to put people. They're not a safe place. Um, they are, um, they are ill prepared to help people. Within the 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 restraints of what they what they feel is their job, which is to cleanse you of all your wrongdoings and make you a better version of yourself, as opposed to just ex- inviting you in and accepting you where you are. Um, I'm not saying that about your church because I don't believe that is true about your church. I, I think there is something to be said for churches. I mean, I'm very.
0: I don't give a lot of advice that isn't just directly related to helping people recognize what God is doing in their life. I I like to teach people how to pray. I don't teach them how to raise their kids, how to have a better marriage, how to handle their finances. What do I know about any of that? I mean, I may know something about it, but I may not. But it's certainly it's not what that's not the role of a pastor. Um, somewhere along the way, the role of the American pastor became that he or she had to be a guru of like every facet of life. And I have steadfastly resisted that more in the last 20 years and maybe earlier, but I, I can help you probably discern maybe what God is doing in your life. And I'm confident I can teach you how to pray. Uh, that's what I do. That's how I pastor. I, I'm not going. If you need help on your marriage, you probably should go to someone that's really good at that, like a marriage counselor. If you're struggling with depression, you may need to go see a psychologist or a psychiatrist, a doctor, somebody. That's not me. If you need help with your finances, that's not me. And um, I, I, I think, see, we are so secular that that an institution that is purely dedicated to a spiritual enterprise is viewed as like totally worthless (laughs) (laughs) because we we don't value that. We don't even, we, we can't even believe that it really would have value. So we have to somehow convince our constituency or our would be customers that we actually have expertise in areas that we really don't and don't even need to. And so, there, there will, there will be a change. Uh, one of the things is happening. I mean, we're we're moving stridently into a further and further post-Christian culture. That's that's going to happen. You ask me what does the church look like fifty years from now? I don't know exactly, but I would say it's chastened. It's much smaller. Uh, if you are going to be a part of church life in the year twenty seventy, I think you're going to have to be willing to be v- viewed as pretty kind of odd, kind of a relic, sort of strange, sort of out of step, but I think all of that is probably good in the long run. We need that. <laughs> Christianity is demanding. And when it's no longer demanding, then it's um it's too compromised and then then it becomes a perversion. I think that's really when it does really begin to become toxic. And but I'm I'm certainly not here to say that yeah, the American church is in a lot of problems, uh, but it's not—it's not the story of every single gathering of people who
2: gather around the name of Jesus. Because there are places and people who are, are healthy oh, absolutely. And you know, I mean, that's the one of the things that I get. You know, when I I I kind of drop my bombs on the church because that's what I do, and I get a lot of times I get well, you're 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 painting a pretty broad stroke. And I'll and I freely admit that I you know sometimes I do it just just for a response. Uh, sometimes I do it just to get somebody's. I, I want I, I want I want them to think, but I absolutely don't believe that every church falls under that trap. It, it just can't, or there or there is no hope at all. And I think there is hope. I, I really do.
0: The, the, it's clearly, the most vocal church in America is is deeply unhealthy, but just because they're right. the loudest and brightest doesn't mean that they're the only option out there and again i I'm, I'm not I'm not speaking defensively because <laughs> but, but I do I just I just think of you know the people there, there's certain there, there's a lot of people in our church that if it weren't for our church they'd be fine they just they'd still be fine but there are other people. That I know good and well, that probably here in St. Joseph, Missouri, there's probably not another place where they're going to find the level of dignity and respect and caring. I mean, these are people that would probably be friendless. And yet they are doing life where people know their name, care for them, love them, will show up to help them if something goes wrong in their life. Uh, and, And that is fairly, I don't know what else is like that. You know, the 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 church in its best iteration creates that kind of phenomenon. Now you're not gonna get, you know, CNN isn't gonna do a story on it because, you know, the sun rises in the east, or what right. that's not a story. <laughs> it's gotta be but but I know that's true. I mean, I'm thinking of Nancy and I'm thinking of Donna. These are real people that I have in my mind right now. I'm I'm thinking of uh Merle. These are people in our church that I better be careful some they might hear this, I don't know, but these these are people that that have found grace in a place where if they hadn't have found it in the church i i I really don't know i mean there might be some version of a secular form but i don't i think most of them would just be overlooked
1: well i you know i i certainly you know um john and i John and I differ on this only in only in practice, if that makes sense. I mean, um, I think if there was a, if there were a church body where John felt comfortable going, he'd go. Um, John hasn't given up on the whole project. So my, my response to not being able to find one was to just go ahead and plant my own. Um, which means I'm just disappointing other people now, which is fine.
0: Uh, <laughs> well, that's, that's the challenge. People say they can I say, well, maybe yeah. you need to start own. I mean, look, that's been yeah. one of my guiding principles is word of life is going to be a, I'm going to lead it and try to form it into the kind of church that I would want to go right. to if yeah, I wasn't right. the pastor, which right. in one right. sense may sound very selfish and it may be. On the other hand, I think there is some wisdom to that.
1: that I, I think I, I, so, and you know, and i I felt, and I, I know John felt this way, which is why he stepped down from his last position at his last church was I got to a place where you know I'm not mad at the guy that I used to work for. I'm not angry at his church. I don't. They, there was nothing particularly wrong. We saw things differently, and I couldn't faithfully continue to carry his vision that I didn't fully I didn't fully buy off on. And so, as a you know, as a question of integrity, I can't be on staff supporting the pastor fully when there's sixty percent of what he's doing. I'm like, yeah, but I wouldn't
0: do it that way. (laughs) And so, I think I think one of the healthiest things that that American church can do is give up on the idea of church growth. I think (laughs) so too, man. You you you, want to stay viable. You know, but, but when you make, when, when church growth becomes a thing, then it tends to occlude all other purposes and just to get more butts in pews becomes, you don't say it, but that becomes the only metric that matters. I think just get rid of that. I mean, it's hard. It's hard. I I can say I've I've arrived there. And it didn't happen until after walking our first Camino where I could really say, I yeah. don't care." I just I, don't care. I, I completely
1: I, understand uh, uh, the uh, temptation, you know because of, of all of the things that we oh, yeah. look at and we chart and we try to talk about church health and the, well, it's, it's what's the most quantifiable thing you can do? Well, we can count, and then I can put that in an Excel spreadsheet, and I can say, year over year we're at five percent growth, boy, wouldn't any church in America love to have five percent growth? And that, and, but then we erroneously sometimes arrive at a place where we say, well, that must mean we're healthy because healthy things grow. Well, so does cancer. So that doesn't necessarily mean, <laughs> you know, you can't causation isn't always correlation or vice versa. So I, I'm with you. When, when church growth becomes, and we put that at the front, then it feels like it will justify anything to, to serve that purpose.
0: Yeah. I mean, you almost, because it's so pervasive, you almost have to be a little bit intentional in saying, we're not going to be about this.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: And uh, it's easy to sit here doing a podcast and say that. But, you know, again, there is a certain level of viability (laughs) that you have to maintain if, if, you know, if that matters to you. And at this point, it, it, you know, here's the, here's the thought experiment that I used to use with pastors I would say, all right, now just a, just a thought experiment. Imagine that you were the only church in town and you were going to be the only church in town. Yeah. There was not going to be another one. You, people either attended your church or they didn't blown any church. If that were the case, would you pastor differently? And invariably, they all say yes. And see, this is the predicament of the American pastor we are tasked with simultaneously maintaining a constituency, which is properly the job of a politician, and making disciples of Jesus. And they are really mutually exclusive tasks. But we're trying to do both at the same time. And it's, it's, I would say it's impossible, in fact. So you if your goal is just to, to attract as many people as you can and keep as many as you can, then I don't think you can faithfully do the job of a pastor. And and well, of course, what, what whatever pastor knows is if I don't satisfy this clientele, there's 50 other churches within 10 miles that'll gladly take them. And I think it just takes a, a deep level of spiritual formation to say, okay, they can have them. it's, it's, but I think you have to pastor like that or else you will just end up either as, as I say, a politician, more like a businessman. We're not, we're not, we're not shopkeepers. That's Eugene Peterson language. We're not shopkeepers. We're we're not trying to maintain customers. This is the prayer I pray as I walk out of my study into the sanctuary every Sunday morning. I've done it for years. I mean, it varies a little bit, but I I say they're not a crowd to be feared. They're not an audience to be entertained. They're people to be loved and helped and healed. And then then I'll easily add whatever specifically I'm leaning into that Sunday. The the role of the pastor is to to be a little bit Jesus, to, to love unconditionally, and to help them open to what God is doing in life, but not to—we don't, we don't coerce. We don't. It isn't my role. To, it isn't my job to change their life. It is. It's certainly not my job to win them. Yeah, right to me,
1: <laughs> God, to our God church. help us. Uh, I'm just. <laughs> yeah, if that's if that's the task of the pastor, then I I'm 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 in, I'm in deep trouble. So <laughs> to win them, you know.
2: Well, and I, I I would just like to add that you you um, have. Given us the opportunity to watch this change in your, in your life, in your church. And, uh, it's, it's remarkable. Um, you, you have allowed access through your sermons, through your books, through conferences to witness and watch this transformation. And I think it is extremely healthy. For a church to have that kind of openness, that kind of transparency, that kind of authenticity. Not a lot of pastors are going to do what you did, uh, especially when they are have have a large congregation to take those steps so openly and so honestly as you did and still are doing. So I just want, you know, I want our listeners to hear that I want everyone to understand that I, I have the utmost respect for what you, what you have done and how you have done it. I think if more churches and more pastors took the steps that you took out in the open like that, I, and what a healthy place the church could be. I, I really believe it. Thank you, John. That's, that's very kind. And I think
0: my situ, I don't know. All I know is my own story, but from a certain distance, I understand people could look at me and say, oh, you know, he's had a career as a pastor. So that's, you know, so he likes the church and that's his career. But, but from my vantage point, uh, my, when Jesus came crashing into my life, when I was a sophomore in high school, you know, just a child, a kid, I just knew that night I knew this was going to be my life. I don't know if I could, I don't know if I would have had the language to say I'm going to be a pastor. I just knew that I had no choice but to serve Jesus. I, and so people said, when were you called to the ministry? I said, I don't think, I don't, I don't have a story to tell. It was the moment I encountered, I just knew, so okay, this is my life now. So there was never a moment where I approached it with like, like thinking in terms of a career. Now, you know, I've I've been able to, you know, it's the only thing I do. And I, I was also very intentional about that. Uh, I, I have great respect for bivocational pastors. I think that's admirable. But I also knew I would never do that. That either I would make, somehow, I would get by doing what I do, talking about Jesus and talking about the gospel, or not. <laughs> or I, would, I would perish. But uh, so I never saw it as, if it does sense, as a career. I've never felt like that. I've never thought like that. Even even when I was getting swept up in stuff that, that was like that, that would always be a little bit at odds with my other pastor. I didn't like it when they talked like that. When they talked about you know salaries and I just didn't I, I ne- there was enough of the Jesus freak that never died in me to ever be comfortable with that and I would like to I would like to see some more yeah, of that I would too uh,
1: sadly we've you, and you mentioned um, briefly you mentioned sort of the celebrity culture that has overtaken you know much of the Western church and and you see that though don't you you see that I, I have friends who are you know, young, getting into ministry and man, boy, that's all they want. They just want to be the next Stephen Furtick. They just want to be the next Joel Osteen. They just the next, and they start popping names of people that they do to Smith, these guys that they like a lot who have these massive followings and platforms. And, and boy, you know, if, if I'm as, if I'm so bold as to give them advice, I'm like, just, you know, be here's you. here's the, here's the thing about that.
0: It, it's just human.
1: Of course. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I see nothing malicious in any of it. It's just human.
0: If Judas Smith wasn't a pastor, he wouldn't no, be a gentleman. absolutely not. He'd be... Okay. Whatever he... I mean, he just... One of those people just got it. And so I think we, I think we need to de-spiritualize a lot of that. Like like it's the anointing and God. The anointing, and the yeah, gosh. I'm not saying it's, it's good or bad. It's just what it is. Let's call it what it is. It's charisma, isn't it?
1: I mean, you
2: know, I mean there, are, there are people who are just, and, and man, they're, just, they're
1: engaging and they would be no matter what they did.
0: Right? right. And I don't, I don't think they should necessarily be, you know, disliked for that. Uh, it, it's just it's what it is. Yeah, I'm, my
1: critique would be less of the, I, I wouldn't critique Stephen Furtick or Judah Smith.
0: But that's right. not the model for the. Your, your point, and I would totally agree, it, that's not the model for the church at all. There there will be those that will happen, especially in our culture, which is enamored by celebrity and big things. I wish we could pull away from that. Uh, I, I think it would be much healthier to have more of a parish concept because there, there's so much entrepreneurialism in the American church that that's not good. That's not good. Um, you know, we don't have a parish concept. Now, now, I critique that as one who that's, you know, what it, I mean, I'm, a, I'm the pastor of a non-denominational church. I don't even believe in that. I, I don't think that's a good idea. My only defense is I just never really, there was never a plan. It's just what happened. <laughs> and at this point, it's too late to change it. You know, I, I'll have all kinds of denominations. So you can join no, us. And I'm no. not joining you. No. I'm not joining anybody, man. <laughs> because right. everybody's got problems. Right. At, <laughs> so, least, at <laughs> least I own my problems. Uh, the, the, the way we compensate for that is though we are, we are de- at Word of Life, we are deeply, almost obsessively ecumenical. I mean we like Catholics and we like the orthodox and we like episcopalian we like mainline liberal churches we like where calvinism's <laughs> robust but you know we but you know what you know what when I was in Scotland I I just said okay I'm going to go to the church that's nearest and the nearest one was like half a block away from where we were staying in Inverness and it was a Scottish Presbyterian church and yeah. I had a wonderful yeah. time so it, it's it's the church in the American the, the American context distorts things so much for the church, and it's hard for us to have a parish mentality. It's hard for us to think if you're pastoring a hundred people, that is, that's that's plenty. Why would you need more than that? You think you can actually pastor more than that? So this was Eugene Peterson. He he basically he didn't think you should pastor more than you could ah, name. That's a good point. If you couldn't, if you didn't know all the names, and and that 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 that, that like now, Perry, she can yeah. almost pull that off. Perry, everybody knows that Perry knows more names of people our church than anybody. She's the better pastor. She's not the preacher. <laughs> I, she, she'll tell you that. I'm the preacher. Yeah, she's the pastor. I mean, I I'm I'm not going to say I'm not a pastor. I am, but but Perry's got that gift stronger here's how I know. Oh, I know just cause I know, but <laughs> <laughs> the evidence is, you know, I get done preaching. I'm kind of an introvert. You can't tell that, but, but I am, you know, I'm not, I'm not a crippling introvert, but I, you know, I like my time away. And so you know, I when we're at church and we have church, and I preach, and church is over, and I hang out and I talk with people, but I think is like a good long while, and I'm shaking hands and praying with people and chatting, and then I, that's enough. I go home. Perry comes home like an hour later. Right, <laughs> right. I, always do. I mean, I'm in the second yeah. quarter
1: of the yeah, football
2: yeah. game. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, my wife is, my wife is the same, you know, we, and I'm actually, I'm, John and I have talked about this a bunch. We're both sort of introverted extroverts, you know, um, I can definitely be, you know, you can get on stage and be on. Absolutely. But yeah. You're done, but I can't yeah. be on all the time and I, and, and it does take its toll and I do need my time alone to decompress. And, um, and my wife, you know, she, I'm, I'm the same. I'll leave. And she follows 35, 45 minutes later because she's gotten into conversations with people and she knows all their names. And she's, um, you know, one of the things that strikes me is um, one of the more catastrophic things we ever did was is, is, as a Western church, exclude women from ministry as much as we have because God help us, we need oh, them and my all goodness. of that. Um, we
0: we need a whole lot more of that feminine
1: strength in our church. Yes, we do. Yeah, no, I, we need more women like Perry and, and Kim, who are out there actually doing some of the hard work of caring for people. I you know I don't know that I could
0: really be a pastor without Perry. I mean, yeah. it takes both of
1: us. Yeah, you I know, think that's really awesome. Uh, hey, we would be remiss though if we didn't at least talk for a moment about about your upcoming book. I don't want to I don't want to leave that untouched because I, I hope to let this out pretty close to the time that your book
0: releases. I'm really excited about it. You know, I I feel about books like I feel about my kids, you know, I don't know. I can't, I don't know that I have a favorite one, but there, but I can talk about them all in different ways. This one feels like it really comes from a pastor's heart. Um, I've never written a book, and I hope never to. I've never written a book where I sat around and scratched my head and said, oh, I feel like I need to. What should I write a book on? I don't know. I've never done that. I I just I just write what I cannot not write, and I just see people losing faith and and having a crisis of faith, and so I, I just want to talk to them because I think I can help them. Um, we are in the midst of a genuine phenomenon. Uh, Nietzsche saw it coming. Uh, I'm very well read in Nietzsche. I like Nietzsche, except sometimes I'm on slapping, but, <laughs> but but in general, I like him, and he was a prophet of sorts. I mean, he writes in eighteen eighty eight he writes the parable of the madman, and here's this, this this man comes in to a village on a bright sunny morning carrying a lantern, and he's crying out, Where is God? Where is God??" I can't find God. And people gather around. They're laughing at this man carrying a lantern in broad daylight and saying, where is God? And then he says, where is God? I'll tell you where God is. God is dead. And we have killed him. And then he smashes the lantern. I know he says, he's old because they're still laughing. And he says, oh, I see. I've come too early. My time is not yet. And then he smashes the lantern and goes into the churches and sings a requiem for God. This is what Nietzsche, he foresaw what was coming. And when Nietzsche says God is dead, he doesn't, it isn't just, he isn't making an argument for atheism. That's not his point. His point is that Western culture no longer has God at the center of it and that people are functionally atheists before they ever actually become atheists. He realized that Western society had moved on without God And that God had become superfluous to the way Western societies ran. They just didn't know it. He says, I see my time has not yet come, but it will. And it has. And um, I kind of play around with the idea that the madman smashing the lantern was a little bit like uh, Mrs. O'Leary's cow kicking over the lantern and starting the fire that turned into the Chicago fire. That, that something has happened. And you'll see, on, on one hand, you'll see people almost angry at Christians that are going through a, a crisis of faith. We can call it deconstruction, although I don't like that term. I mean, I understand what Jacques Derrida means by it. But I kind of unpack that in the book. In fact, the second chapter is called Deconstructing, Deconstruction. <laughs> but, I, but being frustrated or angry at people in the 21st century for losing their faith is a little bit like being angry at medieval people for dying of the plague. I mean, something has happened. Something is happening. Um, and I for those that that realize that faith actually is a precious thing and they would like to hold on to them, I think I can help. And so that's what, whenever things are on fire, that's, that's you know, I can't really in a few moments unpack the book, but I can tell you that's, that's the aim of the book. And I feel good about it. I feel like it's a good book. I'm excited for it to get out there. Yeah,
1: well, we're, I'm excited to read it. As I am anytime you release something, I'm usually like, all right, drop it in the Amazon cart, and uh, we'll we'll get. It. I'll dive into it, and then bore all of my friends with 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 constant quip, quotes and quips. Oh my god, read this part. This is so good. Um, I have um, pretty much evangelized most of my friends to being Brian Zond fans. If nothing else, I, I don't. I don't normally gush when guests come on, but you're one that's gotten me close to gushing just because of, I just want you to know how much you have meant to me personally. Um, how, how much I've gotten out of, of your work. Um, I still, I still go back to your monster God debate, which with, with, uh, with Dr. Michael Brown, which was, I think my first real introduction to you. And I just, I don't know. I still, I still go back and look at it sometimes, but, um, but it, it, broke, it broke a lot of things loose in, in, in very, very good ways and sent me on a path and on a journey.
0: You know, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I know we're bringing it in for a landing here, but I'll tell you the inside story on that debate. The inside story is, uh, you know, is hosted by uh, IHOP. Right, Mike Bickle, right? Mike Bickle, who, who I have known for 30 years. And uh, what happened was I was preaching a series Called the Crucified God. I just stole the title from uh, Moltman, but uh, so and, and it really it, it was a six week series of me trying to save my church from penal substitutionary atonement theory and never using right. the word. I never. I just gave them a new, better way of looking at the cross. Well, a bunch of IHOP students there in Kansas City got excited about it and were listening to it. And that caused them some concern. And so they decided they were going to solve the problem by bringing in Dr. Michael Brown to to set me straight. Now, you all can watch it and you can form your own opinion. Uh, but all I know is I have heard from hundreds of people that this was their gateway into getting something better than penal substitutionary atonement theory as understanding the cross. So if the, if the intent were to... Uh, you know, get rid of any other way of thinking about the cross. But PSA, it was a failure. Oh at yeah, that. yeah. <laughs> it's actually become a gateway for people to, <laughs> yeah. to yeah. think differently. So I think I think that's a little bit funny. The, another, an interesting
1: part of that for me was I came into, I had heard of Doctor Brown, um, and he had written a. I don't like it when people write books in objection to other books. Um, and he had done that with with uh, with hyper grace, right? He had decided to take on the topic of hyper grace and you know begin to you know, and so that's just I,
0: I find it cheap and a little. But, um. yeah, I've done some other academic, more academic debates. I did one with some Calvinists in uh, Chicago, sponsored by Christianity Today, and that was you know it was it was it was done more in an academic format. And afterwards we all hung out and it was convivial. It seemed you know? like it was convivial with and Dr. Brown. Was that, was but, it not the case? Michael was, Brown, I will be honest, he didn't want to hang out no, with me. No, no. He was like, <laughs> I was
1: the devil. He's a likable enough guy, but it, so much of, and it's not him, it, no, it's not just him anyway, but there's that, certain, that sort of stream of of, of of thinkers and theologians like him who are so hell bent on their certitudes that there's a smugness that comes well, across, you but know? he's
0: also got a daily radio program. And, and you ever notice these guys that that daily radio programs? You have to keep feeding, yeah, absolutely. Those yeah. things thrive on anger and on uh, what's the word I want? Resentment, or uh, they gotta have, 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 beef, to have a, gotta have a beef with somebody, right? And that begins, to, and that and that's what, basically. I've done some academic debates, theological debates. I like it. My brother was a national debate champion, not in theology, but I mean, he's a he's a lawyer. My dad was a judge. He was a great debater. So it's just kind of in my genetics. And I quit doing most of them. I haven't done any for a long time because you know why I quit? Because I'm good at it, and it was feeding my ego. And I thought, oh, I don't want to be because, like like the monster god debate, people have said, you know, I like you. You, you maintained your you were nice. And if you get good at something, you cannot be nice right. about it. Yeah, And I thought for my own soul formation, I needed to not do those anymore. I'll have conversations where we might have different opinions, but actually a debate where you call it that, I won't do that anymore because I don't think it's good for my soul. Um, Yeah, I'm with
1: you. I don't, well, and even, in, even in a very sort of, casual way you know I, I don't let myself get engaged in those kinds of conversations anymore just because it ends up just being um just just, just a game of one-usmanship you know i got you know you said yep, this now i gotta retaliate and, with yeah, this you, you gotta do, retaliate. Exactly. Now i have to yeah. show you how smart i am i have to mm-hmm. and i'm like you i'm like I, I learned from i learned from the master my father can argue with the best of them and so i, I grew up with that skill set and i have used it to hurt people um Maybe not intentionally, but that's that's you know you know how it is when that's your when that's your weapon of choice, you get good at using it. And so I'm I'm i I'm leery of that for me. Like I don't need that temptation to start slicing and dicing people with so um I, I just refrain. Yeah, I think we're on
0: the same page yeah. with that.
1: But I I will say that um that debate was was uh it was key. You know, it really was because up until that point, I don't know that I'd ever questioned the theory before. Um it reminds me actually of a, the, my experience with reading Farewell to Mars um, was that I had never really questioned the idea of violence before. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm just confronted with this reality that pretty much everything I've, you know, that, that I've been raised to believe is them. Um, so, and that launches me down a road into Gerard and into, you know, other, you know, talking about sacred violence and learning about man. man
0: there's no coming back after <laughs> you've gone into Gerard. Gerard <laughs> is like, there's, there's no, no coming back.
1: You can't I mean, unsee what you've seen, right? You can't put you, you can't put me back into the matrix. Now I know I get it. So, uh, but you know, you were the catalyst for all of that, and that's where I really wanted to land with that was. And I could, man, I could, I could talk to you for hours. Um, and hopefully at some point we'll get a chance to talk to you again. Yeah, we just love you. We appreciate you. Thanks for for thanks for coming on. Make sure and I'll be on the lookout for Brian's new book. It'll be coming out shortly. And uh, my goodness, what else can we say? Ladies and gentlemen, BZ was in the house, and uh, as always, he brought it and he rocked it. So we thank you, brother. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you very much.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.